Public health is a population-based field of science focused on preventing disease and promoting health. Every week, we will be engaging in interactive discussions and analyses of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is Sully, and I'm here with our public health panel, LaShawn, Gordon, and Will. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. In this episode, we'll be discussing an interview article by the World Economic Forum titled Death on an Appalling Scale, David Miliband on the Threat of COVID-19 to Refugees. In this interview, Mr. Miliband, CEO and President of the International Rescue Committee, highlights the urgency of the refugee situation in face of the pandemic and the need of a coordinated international response in order to prevent a potential humanitarian disaster. Just imagine what it's like to face the prospect of a virus, he said regarding refugees' vulnerability to the coronavirus, where there isn't running water, where there isn't a proper health system. He also stressed that if the international community doesn't get the prevention aspect of their work right, then the nearly non-existing health system won't be able to prevent death. And I quote here, on an absolutely appalling scale. All right, guys, so why should we care about refugee health at all? Hmm. It's important to care about refugees because refugees, and I'm going to kind of clump refugees and migrants into the same boat and same box because both of these populations experience similar vulnerabilities or things like that, right? So I think that they're an important population that we need to consider because one, these populations are often already in a vulnerable state. So for refugees, they're often individuals or groups that are escaping things like political persecution, um, violence, other things like that that are very traumatic experiences and in order to kind of help these individuals we have to first make sure that they're healthy before we can move them on and consider other aspects of their of their well-being yeah and also just to add to that the we have to note that the there are 70 million people of the world's population are currently classified as refugees because they are currently displaced from their original setting so in terms of sheer numbers, if 70 million people um, were, you know, dying from coronavirus or getting coronavirus every year, then more people would care. So I think um, just from the sake of pure numbers, there's a lot of people um, affected uh, from, as Will mentioned, escaping political persecution in their own country or, you know, things like war and conflict. And it grows beyond these 70 million people because these 70 million people often also have families all around the world and those mm-hmm. families are also uh, emotionally impacted by this as well exactly and and you're also mentioning that um, these individuals are impacted by um, political situations in the countries they're fleeing from so there's also an aspect that affects their mental health and when they when they come and seek asylum somewhere else and perhaps go into a refugee camp they don't have the health care resources at a refugee camp that we we in Canada or the United States are privileged to usually they don't have doctors nurses um, or other 
trained staff that can help assist them with any of their conditions. So what you see is people in these camps have many ailments and conditions that are not properly attended to. So as a result, they won't get the treatment that is necessary for them to get better too. So if you're affected by a health condition or an ailment, it's just going to further exacerbate all the issues that are going around in addition to trying to seek asylum in a safe area. So, so Sully, we know um, we've been friends for a while and we know some refugee health is something that you're passionate about. Uh, maybe you could share some, some of your experiences, some things you've seen, some, things, some challenges that you want to share with us. Yeah, let me give a bit of a context here. Um, there is a lot of refugees, say, in the Middle East, and um, say they're bunched up in Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, Yemen, um, Greece, and their problem is further exacerbated by the geopolitics that's happening over there, um, and like the wars and conflicts. So when you add uh, additional stress from COVID-19, when health care in refugee camps are nearly non-existent, they're only, they're, they're mostly dependent on NGOs over there with like minimal resources. So when you add the stress of COVID-19, obviously there is going to be a disaster happening if we don't put preventative measures in time, the nearly non-existing healthcare system is not going to be strong enough to you know, address any further complications this virus is going to do to, uh, you know, the vulnerable uh, amongst these refugees. So so when we're talking about the death of thousands of people and maybe tens of thousands, hopefully not, but if that happens, we're not just talking about a disaster for refugees over there. We're talking about, oh, the virus is going to infest in there, is going to spread over there. So if we don't address it, it will it will spread beyond the refugee camps and into the surrounding populations. And this issue will further exacerbate into the surrounding populations. And then before we know it, to the global community, you know, it doesn't matter what preventive measures or uh, healthcare system you have in your country is going to come over there because, you know, we're, we're in an interconnected global community and we're only as strong as the weakest chain, as uh, Mr. Miliband says. So if if it spreads in refugee camps, spills over to surrounding populations, eventually it's going to affect the whole global community in a more disastrous way than right now. So, Sully, I know that this topic is very close, clo- uh, close and dear to you. Um, I just want to know, do you know what kind of conditions these refugee camps are often in? Yeah. It's, to be honest, it's horrendous. It's because when I say nearly non-existing healthcare, I'm, I mean it. It's, it's not just the healthcare too. It's like, you know, the other resources, you know, food, shelter, water, mm-hmm. the usual, you know, and like right, sanitation, right. all of that. Right. So I have, I guess, following up with that then is my other question of, so we see with the current COVID pandemic that a lot of the measures being implemented are things like lockdown measures or sanitation, um, this social distancing, things like that. 
Do you think it's realistic that these measures can be implemented in these camps, given their lack of water, lack of sanitation, and just the sheer number of people? Exactly. You have to keep in mind that also the density of these uh, camps, because I'm going to bring it further back. Remember the geopolitics I was talking about? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, these, so it's like an open prison. You're, okay. you're not allowed to go beyond, you know, what you're assi- the place you're assigned to, mm-hmm. you know? You're not a citizen of the country, after all. Or, right. Yeah, so uh, we're talking about 40,000 to 70,000 uh, per square kilometer in terms of density. It's even higher than New York's 25,000 per square mile. So mm-hmm. the measures we're applying right now in Canada, it's not... You cannot simply carry it over to refugee camps. That that's not going to work that way. You need mm-hmm. like more. It needs to be a more holistic approach. So right. I just wanted to share a personal experience I had when I was a health promotion intern in Thailand. I had the opportunity to go near the Myanmar and Thailand border and actually visit a refugee camp. And let me tell you, it there were people everywhere. It was beyond crowded. As soon as you walk into the refugee camp, you see people everywhere. There's no room for cars to come in, no rooms for to pave your own path to go to your destination. And as I was looking around while I was going throughout the refugee camp is the housing that they have, which could sometimes be tents or um, wooden structures put together to make makeshift houses. You see that within these households that they make, it's severely overcrowded there's sometimes 10 people in a small little tent and you bring the question of do these measures of social distancing work in these situations well if you don't have a space to physically distance yourself from other people it won't be an effective measure so that's Mm -hmm. why especially in refugee camps when you think about this density issue when you think about the housing situation there when you think about the lack of healthcare facilities, professional doctors, um, nurses, healthcare workers, they're severely lacking this. So if there is an outbreak at any of these refugee camps, it's going to be a very scary situation. Very scary. Right. So that's a really good point. And I, it's really great to hear about your personal experience. Then so that's that got me thinking that if none of these measures can actually be realistically implemented into these refugee camps and the research and the current um, guidance by the WHO and other health authorities have shown that social distancing and other isolation measures are the most effective against COVID. If none of these can be realistically implemented in refugee camps, then what what's the real solution? Right. Because, yeah. Go right. Ahead, go that's, ahead. that's 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 a mm-hmm. question. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think the idea in a lot of the articles we've been reading is um, so social distancing is a measure that you typically use when the virus is already in the population. Right. So the article emphasized prevention, which deals with um, preparing for when the virus does inevitably come into the population. So the idea or the call to action for this um for this topic that we're discussing today is to prevent the coronavirus from getting to these vulnerable populations in the first place because as we've learned even measures beyond social distancing just like basic hand hygiene 
So we learned that in some refugee camps, there are um, up to 1,500 people per one hand-washing station, which isn't a practical solution to prevent the spread of germs. And mm-hmm. we've, we've talked about how overcrowding, so, you know, in you mentioned the WHO and even here in Canada, um, the public health authorities in the United States, everyone's emphasizing sheltering in place or staying at home. Um, staying at home may even make people in these situations more vulnerable because it, when they do leave the space of their own homes where it's overcrowded, maybe they would be less vulnerable to spreading the virus within their family. So I think this emphasizes while we want a coordinated um, response on a global stage, you also have to tailor response to different groups. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And some of the things that they're at least calling for within these refugee camps, I know there's a lot of advocates within these camps, they're calling for the government to allow um, some of these refugees to settle um, within hotels that are being unused. But the owners of the hotels claim that it's closed and, you know, it's just they're not making a lot of accommodations for these refugees. What needs to happen, though? beyond the measures we're putting right now is to remind the government and the people responsible over there that at the end of the day, the health of these refugees are directly related to the health of your populations. So you don't fix that problem. The problem is going to carry over to other places. Yeah, just to add to that point too, we, we've also seen that, um, you know, in... I, I like to refer to New York as an example because the govern New York Governor Andrew Cuomo seems to be getting praise for his response to the COVID nineteen pandemic. So he he's been calling for the New York um, State to get over or close to thirty thousand ventilators uh, in anticipation of how many people will need to be hospitalized and need um, ICU care. And we've, we're learning that there's some countries in Africa that barely even have a single ventilator for the whole country. Mm, true. So, right. And that ventilator that we're talking mm. about isn't for refugees. It's for the country in which refugees are displaced in. So if we if it's, mm-hmm. it's imperative that you know, countries are supported because um, refugee health will also impact the health of um, other citizens in the country because, in ex- for example, if that those limited um, yeah. ventilators are being used by refugees, then that's less ventilators available for the rest of the population. So as you mentioned, Sully, before, it's important to yeah. look after refugee health because it will also impact the health of other uh, populations on the periphery as well. Exactly, exactly. So as you know, there are cases already been recorded in conflict zones and um, why I want to stress here is that there is little time left for us to take action on that regard before the disease becomes rampant. So it brings me to the state of provisions and economics of preventive measures. Um, As you also know, the UN has issued a $2 billion emergency humanitarian aid. in respect to the COVID-19 pandemic. And only $100 million of these dollars are going to, say, NGOs who are actually uh, operating on the front lines with their staff and healthcare workers. So what do you guys think about that? 
for certain countries um, that are severely impacted by or who has who have refugee crises, um, I'm not sure if money as, is as important as human resources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in Canada and the United States, you're hearing about emergency financial packages being given to um, workers that have been laid off or where their income has been affected by COVID-19. We're talking about people who don't even earn any income as it is right now, mm-hmm. right? So when you're in a refugee camp uh, and you need to see a doctor, giving someone $100 or giving an NGO $100 when, you know, volunteers from all all over the world are being recalled back to their own country. In this case, it's weird. It's weird. It's, it sounds very weird, but money may not be as important as actual volunteers and human resources on the ground. But is that what the $2 billion of hu- of emergency humanitarian aid is actually going for? Like, what's that, what's that money? Um, what was it collected and kind of funded together? Like, what, what's, what was the original use for that money? Was it to give people individual payouts or was it to procure things like food, sa- uh, safe water, um, uh, sanitary, uh, hygiene products, things like that? Yeah, it's going to go to everyone. Um, I mean, the these dollars are raised by, like, you know, the members of the UN, so the actual countries themselves. Um, and they're going to spend it on, you know, like healthcare equipment and, you know, because of all the shortages happening around the world and the logistics. Yeah, so so in that case, then, if it's going, if it's actually being used within these conflict zones or within these refugee camps directly for the, um, the individual's who are being mis- uh, displaced and are currently in the camps, then isn't that a good use of the money? I, w- I would say so. I would say so. I just, my point was coming from the article that's saying even um, foreign foreign aid in the form of, because you can look at foreign aid in, a, in terms of um, financial and human resources. So what we're seeing is a lot of countries are pulling back um, or even nonprofits are even pulling back their volunteers that are p- uniquely situated in, in these conflict zones and refugee camps who usually typically provide the supports. So now when if there's money and there's no people to pay to go anywhere, um, I'm not sure if money becomes as valuable as it would normally be. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Th- that's actually a really good point because you mentioned that a lot of these NGOs are having difficulties with some of the measures put up. Um, by countries to combat COVID-19. There's a lot of travel restrictions which prevent workers to come to these countries in areas of interest. And in addition to that, these NGOs, their regular line of work, whether it be working uh, for just general care or malaria or tuberculosis, any of that, their work for those um, causes might be affected by uh, so uh, these physical distancing measures that are in place. So NGOs really have to have a shift, and I think they are having a shift currently to kind of work within the framework they're given and kind of adjust to provide um, a support given the conditions. Yeah, 100%, I agree with that. Actually, the WHO, in one of their um, media briefings, they actually announced that they'll be temporarily stalling the global polio eradication program wow and vaccinations because there's so much um resource intensive need Mm. for COVID 19 right that 
that they will not, I guess, in countries around the world where, you know, it's a lot of frontline healthcare workers doing the community to community vaccination projects. Mm. These would be temporarily put on hold. I'm assuming one for the safety of these workers, but also two so that they can divert these resources over to COVID-19. Wow. I just got chills listening to that because when you, if you start to think about the consequences of that, right, you have other, you know, non-communicable diseases and other communicable diseases that disproportionately affect, um, you know, refugee and migrant populations. So, you know, maybe we're focusing on COVID-19 and rightly so, but then there's the, there's going to be another kind of hidden enemy uh, in the form of, you know, as LaShawn touched on, tuberculosis and other diseases that might also, you know, once we mitigate our way through this COVID-19 pandemic, maybe we're going to see the rates of other diseases going up because other NGOs like um, LaShawn mentioned and will mention are now maybe the resources are being diverted and they're now becoming underfunded. So then that work is not able to continue because of less money, less human resources. Um, I, I don't think we're prepared for the wreckage that will be left behind after COVID-19 and how different it will look for each population. So as we discussed in this episode, we had an overview on uh, the situation of current mi- migrants and refugees around the world, um, how they lack the basic resources to, uh, you know, to run their basic lives in the in the first place. And beyond that, you put the COVID-19 issue, which is just going to further exacerbate the problem. And without any timely action, the issue might get out of hand. So we urge you to continue to support NGOs on the front line because refugee health is human health. Remember, public health is a field of inquiry and an arena for action to improve lives one population at a time. This has been the Public Health Insight Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please drop us a like and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your podcast platform of choice. You can also send us your questions, comments, and suggestions for discussion topics at thepublichealthinsight.gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.